My Monticello is an ingenious and vividly written novella from debut author Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. She brings all of our fears and anxieties to the reading table and asks that we hold them and look at them from all angles, such as in her story, Buying a House Ahead of the Apocalypse, where a mother makes a list of things she will need when she considers what will be lost during the end of the world. Jocelyn joins us on the show to discuss how the violent Unite the Right white supremacist rally inspired her titled story. We also chat about how her opening story, Control Negro, made it into the hands of Roxane Gay and read from the lips of the lit king himself, LeVar Burton. Stay with us on another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by my birthday pick yes! for fiction, yes! author uh, Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. So a little info on our, our wonderful author. Jocelyn Nicole Johnson is the author of My Monticello, a fiction debut that was called a masterly feat by the New York Times and winner of the Weatherford Award for work that reflects Appalachia. Johnson's work was also a finalist for the Kirkus Fiction Prize, a National Book Critics Circle Award, and the LA Times Book Prize, as well as long-listed for a Penn Faulkner Fiction Award and the Story Prize. Johnson has been a fellow at Tin House, Hedgebrook, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Her writing has appeared in Guernica, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Her short story, Control Negro, was anthologized in the Best American Short Stories, guest edited by Roxane Gay, and read live by the Laverne Burton. A veteran public school art teacher, Johnson lives and writes in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to the show. We are so ecstatic to have you here. Woo-hoo! How are you today? Oh, I'm doing really good. It's nice to see your faces. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice to be seen by you. Um, this is definitely a, a pleasure and a treat um, to have you on the show. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of your wonderful book that you have written, um, I'm going to pass it off to Denny. We like to do a little a little five seat hot seat question here. Yes, not nothing, nothing too scary. Um, it's just all all about you. Um, <laughs> so we knew that you love art. What is the latest art form that you are dabbling with right now? Oh my gosh! So I just like to draw. So with art, with writing, you know, I'm trying to got try to get published. I work so hard on it. With art, it's like just pleasure for me. I really like to draw and make things for myself. And I have kind of constantly have a journal of just doodles and ideas. And it's all the stuff that you can't even find words for. And you just, you know, that kind of meditative lines. So that's still what I love. It's kind of a consistent thing. I love ink and watercolor and drawing and like a nice, sharp, crisp uh, Sharpie is like a good thing. 
Yes, right out the box. <laughs> With a brand new smell, like a brand, like you know, when you smell a brand new book. Yeah. <laughs> a place in Virginia that you go to when you need to de-stress and like relax. Outside for sure. Um, I don't think I have one place, but some sort of wooded path where you can't see buildings. Um, where there's, you know, ferns on the side of the road, there's some trees, there might be a little scurrying animal, but not too close or big. <laughs> and just um, being out, I think out on a path in the woods is just a happy place for me. Yeah, yeah. nothing like being nature. Yes, earthing, I call it earthing, mm. being one with the land. <laughs> uh, where was the first place where you saw your book in the wild? I so my book came out during the pandemic, which was a little bit challenging for seeing it in the wild. And I definitely got photos from people, but probably right here in Charlottesville at the New Dominion Bookshop. That's our local indie bookshop. And they really, uh, you know, supported the book. I like signed a bunch of books there and they had it up in the window forever. And I took a bunch of selfies with myself with the book in the window. And then my parents took selfies with themselves. <laughs> The best thing about publishing a book is uh, my parents are so proud. <laughs> it's oh, really fun. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So we did a deep dive literally in your Instagram. Um, and this was the f first ever picture that you posted. It's with your husband and he was swimming with whale sharks. And somebody in the comments was like, where in the world are you? Because I've swam with whale sharks, but it was in the Philippines. Where was that picture taken at? Yeah, that is my first Instagram picture. That was taken in Mexico, kind of near Tulum. My mm -hmm. son and husband, we we went to like an all-inclusive resort and I wrote a, like a dystopic story about it. <laughs> Actually, it's on my website if anyone wants to read it. But they went out and swam with whale sharks. I did not go out and swim <laughs> with whale sharks. It was terrifying. They had to like go, you know, out really far out where the, where the whale sharks are migrating and like jump out into these really choppy waves. And it was intense. Apparently they both are much more comfortable in the water than me, but they also said it was super intense. So I was happy that I stayed in the fancy hotel room and, and probably read a book. <laughs> That's yeah. the best place to be. I, I was, I was shot. so brave. We were in this little boat. We went out to sea and this, you know, huge, wonderful beings are swimming in the ocean. And I was like, yeah, because they they were like, it, this is in the Philippines. You can take your vest if you know how to swim. We trust you and you can go down and you'll be fine. You know, as long as you know how to swim. And I was like, I know how to swim. I was about to take my vest off and then a fin hit me <laughs> like a fin. And I'm like, you know what? You got to <laughs> nature. It's time to go back. Let's go back to the boat and see the whale sharks from afar. <laughs> <laughs> I so respect that. I have done stuff like that. I've, I swam in the long ago, I went on a trip with my husband, we traveled and we went to the Galapagos. And I swam out with like the flippers and the snorkel and all the things and there were little, not big things, but you know, seals and all kinds. of. I was terrified. I swam right to the beach. She was like, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. I was like, I want to live. I'm going to <laughs> yeah. protect, protect thy life. Um, <laughs> since we're talking about, you know, traveling, what was the best travel destination you visited and your next, you know, dream vacation? Where I want to go. I have a dream. Okay. So my father's turning 80. My parents are in really good health. My dad's turning 80. He loves photography. I have a dream to go to the continent of Africa, which I have not been and go and 
on some sort of like super hippie where they actually uh, aren't super, I mean, you're exploiting things, but not super exploiting the animals where you can go and see animals and take pictures and just experience being in a different place as some of the nature that I hope to see. And I think it'd be fun to see with my, with my teenager and my parents and my partner. I think Mm -hmm. that's a wonderful trip to take. I can't wait to see the photos if you should ever post them. (laughs) (laughs) So um, this year I decided that I wanted to take on like this, this mantra or this focus on exploring what it meant to be black and Southern in America. And it was based off of Andre 3000 infamous quote, the South got something to say. It stemmed from a visit to Savannah, Georgia that I, on a trip that I made with Denny and um, walk, just walking around there and the Telfair art museum, you can feel like the heaviness of the city as well of it being intertwined with the beauty of it all. And so this year I really wanted to like dig into the works created and written by um, black people whose roots were heavy in the South, which I feel like majority of us are in some way. Um, And so my first question to you is, is that as a writer and a, a Southern native, what do you feel that the Black South has to say that the rest of America needs to hear? Oh, I love that. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I can just bring it back to myself. So I was born in Virginia, which is still the South, but it's like I was born in Northern Virginia, which doesn't think of itself as the South. I live in Charlottesville now, but my entire family, uh, immediate family, my mom, my dad, and my older brother were all born in Lexington, South Carolina, and were there for a period of time at least. Um, And so I'm kind of like the outlier, but all my bazillion cousins, my grandma lived in this, you know, that's where we would go back home to when I was growing up. And my parents really moved away to have economic opportunity. So home was still South Carolina, but then it became this kind of dual sense of home, right? Because home was Virginia and home was South Carolina and kept going back and forth. For me, there's just, even in these stories where I'm talking about Virginia and I'm talking about Virginia as a Southern place, I keep thinking and referencing South Carolina and the South in the imagination of my childhood and growing up with my cousins and my understanding of my parents' experience, which was so different than mine growing up in segregation, growing up going to amazing all black schools where they were really cared for and loved, but then kind of hitting the economic ceiling at being teachers that didn't get paid very much, you know, and just having all that struggle and striving and that idea of what America is. And what I, one thing I think that happens is when you grow up like that, you see America differently. Your experience of what America at least used to say it wanted to be Mm-hmm. ran very afoul to your experience of living in America. And so it kind of gives you this view, this kind of secret view into just into the nature of how things are, right? Everyone's saying it's like this, but you absolutely know and are experiencing it, experiencing it like that as well. And so that duality, I think, just makes for uh, interesting stories. Mm -hmm. And you've definitely pulled 
us into that landscape of you know dealing with that duality with all of these amazing short stories and the novella that's in mm -hmm. my Monticello. Uh, this collection has been out in the world uh, for a year now, and now out on paperback uh, yes. just a, a few days ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, a couple of days ago as we as we're speaking. When you look back at how your life is unfolded to this point today, what comes to mind when you think about these 200 plus pages and what they've brought you? Yeah, it's so funny because things seem impossible until they're not. So I was writing for a really long time. I loved writing as a teenager. I was all into art and writing and I used to sing and dance. I don't know why, because I'm not really good at singing and dancing, but I was just like all the expressions, all the expressions are me. And so, but I kept up with writing. I kept up with drawing and making art. And, you know, at some point I really had this goal to be published and it, it, it just has to do with audience. You're making something and you want it to have an audience to some extent, you're trying to communicate something. So you want someone to, to be communicated to someone. And so I worked on that for so long before I actually had this debut. I probably had a good 20 years of very serious writing and 15 years where I had agents sending out work um, that didn't end up, you know, getting published. You know, I had short stories published and, and smaller things, but as far as a book length manuscript. And uh, so when this Actually, when I started to write these stories, when I sent them out, you know, found different partners that were super excited about them, when I realized it would be published uh, in a really supportive way, in one sense, I was just like kind of over the moon because it was so exciting and so fun. But in another sense, I realized that it feels a little lucky, you know, like what comes what comes is partially what you make and then partly what the world is wants at that moment and what it's ready for and what it's interested in. And so you have control of this inside part, these stories and the world's going to do what the world's going to do to some extent. Mm -hmm. So I think I had a little bit more wisdom about that. Um, and so that helped a little bit, but, uh, but really exciting. And again, it's so exciting to make your parents proud, even at, at 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Always. So you started this book with a couple of short stories and it ended with a novella. How and when did you decide that this was the way you wanted to present your work to, to your audience or to the world? Yeah, so when I wrote, I wrote these stories roughly between uh, 2015 and 2020 when I was teaching full-time uh, public school art teacher. And so... First of all, I love short stories just in general. I read a lot of short stories. I just, I like them. I like being in someone's mind and being like, you know, something that you can read in a sitting or two. It's just containable. I can do that. But as a full-time teacher, also writing a short story was just a little bit more manageable because, you know, I have a child, I have a partner, I have uh, dogs that are very bad. And so to find time to, you know, <laughs> write a novel I have written I you know I had one of those projects that went out was a novel but to write it all at once and keep the thread of the voice of it while being distracted by the whole world is a little bit it's, it can be challenging for me so um so so yeah at some point I was writing these stories and then I realized they had this theme running through them of kind of home of belonging of these outsider characters of black and black characters in Virginia and I say it's like 
pins in a map, right? So they're all kind of fitting in the space of Virginia. And I wrote the novella last. By that time, I knew that these stories were related. I had this idea that this was going to be a, a project. And I wasn't sure if the novella fit, but it I love that it fits so weirdly. I mean, we talked about the novella could be on its own. Uh, in the UK version, it is just the novella that's published. And some of the other translations, it'll be the novella. But what I love about it is it was all together. They they balance each other. The novella has threads from other stories since I read it last. I pulled lines out. The line, Virginia is not your home, is like echoed in the novella. Like it plays back and forth. And it also resists the idea of like one story. Like um, they're all black characters in Virginia thinking about home, but they're all managing it in different ways. And I really, I love that about short story collections because someone can't just say that's it because everything's an argument and in contrast to everything else. And it's just like this big tangled mass of people, which is what, you know, life is kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think our favorite thing that we have discovered is reading in short story collections, like between your book and Disha and Dan Peel. Yeah, it has definitely been like one of the brightest things because you're given multiple chances at different stories rather than just one. And I, I really would love for people to really dig deeper into oh, yes. short story collections and what the gift that it offers uh, rather than just reading one story, you know, you have all of these things and to be able to have those threads that you talked about that either knowingly or unknowingly that you find that these stories are connected is, is just simply amazing. Yeah. That's the game that I play in my head when I, cause I love short stories, like even, you know, Sabrina and Karina um, by Khalif Fajardo Einstein. Um, I think that was that was when I was like, I really love short stories. And ever since then, I try to always have short stories in our in our in our rotation because I think it kind of like refreshes the palette. And then the game that I play with myself is like, yeah, what I told you, like I try to find this like this theme that runs through the whole story and like, you know, that analyzation of how how the author wants to talk to us. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the most wonderful thing. I love and, that. And speaking of, you know, how you want to talk to us, let's talk about this very first story that that opens up this book. Oh my God, this Sur story is Surprise. Yeah, I love <laughs> surprise. it. Uh, the ending, like everything, like the beginning, the middle, the end. Your first story is Controlled Negro. Um, was presented in the best American short stories. How did that story find its way into the hands of Roxanne Gay? Yeah, so first of all, I would just say when I gave that story to my writer group before it was published or anything, I was like, this is either it has something or I should never show anyone this story <laughs> because it's it ha it's a hard, it's a weird story and it's a hard story and it is not me, but it is me because it came from me, right? Um, so I wrote that story. I sent it to the slush pile at Guernica magazine. Someone suggested they would be a good home for it. I actually have since met the person who read it out of the, out of the slush pile, this writer named Morgan Baps, who writes out of New Orleans, who has a novel about kind of the, the floods there. But she, um, she was like, I think we have something. And she said she immediately sent it off to them. At any rate, it was published there. And Roxanne Gay tweeted about it. I don't even think I was on Twitter at that point, but someone called you know somebody texted me from one of my writer workshops like she was like I see your name on a thing and Roxanne Gay is tweeting about you <laughs> and my son was with me I think I screamed 
Totally. He's like, what is wrong with you? I don't understand. Anyway, uh, super exciting. And then the next, like that next cycle after it was published, she happened just unrelatedly became the, you know, the co-editor, the guest editor for Best American Short Stories. So I was like, I'm definitely going to, you know, send it to her. Didn't expect it to necessarily be anthologized in there, but I was like, it's definitely worth a try. She knows this story. She was interested in it. And being in that anthology was like a dream come true. It was so nice because so many people read that. I I would read them. I just buy the used old ones. I buy the new one. Had a bunch on my shelf already. And people teach from that. So mm-hmm. people would, you know, were teaching it, something I wrote for the first time. So that was kind of my taste. And then LeVar Burton read it live at City Space and said it, you know, so that, that was like my first taste that like, oh, this could you know, I could find a bigger audience. Um, and that kind of became another piece to the collection because I'd already had a couple stories and been thinking on it and that kind of bolstered the project for me and just got me even more excited about it. Yeah, that that story is is, is simply amazing on how you have the story play out of a, of a father who is who has no contact with his son and is essentially using them as an experiment to see how their life would, you know, move um, if they were given certain privileges and that another child would not have been privy to. And the ending, I, y'all, if y'all haven't you read have this story, read you have to read it. It's like one of those things that will just sit with you, that you just sit. I remember us talking about it and being like, I think when I listen to it and it reveals that big moment, I kind of stopped listening to, I was in shock. Like I was like, this is totally unexpected. I had no idea that this was going to happen, but this is the magic of what writing can do and and what this story has done. And I think I like it because it screams like dystopian in my face Mm. almost. And I, and it's, it's it's always hard for me to find like you know people of color writing in this sort of perspective and to me it's always like magical because it's it's something that I I love reading but I don't always find myself or like um you know represent representation just like we can we can write and write better about these things and and that was it blew my mind (laughs) I was like if this if this is the end of this if this book, I, 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 I'm done. I'm satisfied. <laughs> but it, 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 it's the gift that keeps on giving, yes. and, and we're not done. We're not done. <laughs> oh well, thank you. I'm glad you all liked it. It's a tough story, but one thing I think about, you know, the story is this Frankenstein-like father running that experiment, like Denny was saying. But uh, we do this on our children. Like, I don't recommend his parenting style at all. It's not my parenting style. It's not how I was parented, but we do look at our children, we look at our daughters and say, we want you safe. So dress, you know, dress more modestly. Uh, we look at our children who may love differently and be tone it down. We want you to be safe. We, we explaining racism to my then 11 year old child felt like its own kind of injury <laughs> just mm-hmm. to explain to him, not that he, I mean, he was seeing it, but to contextualize for him and to confirm it for him felt and to try to prepare him to be safe felt like an injury in itself. And in a weird way, the story is talking about this much more normal thing, even mm-hmm. though it's exaggerated to this very, very um, not normal way of being for most parents. Yeah. Um, sometimes uh, people who are from a small town have the habit of when asked where they're from, 
they will either in, say either the nearest biggest city or they'll just dismiss the question and say, oh, you've never heard of it before. Um, and what we've seen in Virginia is not my home is that the main character is erasing not only where she grew up, but her entire sense of, of self. What was the inspiration behind that particular story? Oh my gosh. So almost all the stories are a reaction to something. Sometimes they're a reaction to something that really happened in the world. Like that first story, Control Negro, was a reaction to a police brutality incident on the University of Virginia against a, a student, a Black student. Um, but that one was more personal. I, um, I without naming names, uh, I had a parent when my child was young um, kind of yell at my child in this way that I thought was just very inappropriate. And I'm like really chill. I'm like elementary school teacher energy, but I was so mad. My soul was so proud of me for being mad because I was like ready to go protect him in the world. <laughs> this person had like gotten some information, incomplete information, instead of coming to me or figuring it out or getting the scoop, she kind of went ballistic. I'm like a little, like a third grader mm. <laughs> as a grown person uh, in daycare in the after school program. And so I was really, really annoyed with this person and really angry with her. And just, and so I kind of wrote the story about her. Mm. The character is not her, but I kind of use some of the things that happened in that moment and created this voice and thought about someone who's so dissatisfied in their life, who's so uncomfortable in their skin, who has like talents, but is just wanting to be elsewhere, wanting to be more self-important, wanting to have a certain kind of power. And then of course, as I'm writing, it becomes a whole nother thing and it becomes uh, a whole different story. And I have more empathy for the character. And then in real life, when I see the person, I'm like, ah, eh, I'm, I'm good now. I got my revenge in my writing. <laughs> but in that story, there's a character where there's a moment where she yells at a child. And that was like, so often I'll just kind of reclaim, you know, when real life, you can't be the puppet master and make everything happen, but you can take things and rearrange them and refract them in your stories and make them something different. And that's what I did in that one. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing with the power of what you can do with writing, like working through those moments where you're just like, I, I just don't understand why that person did that thing. And let me like sit down and write all of that out in a way where I feel like I can work through it, like a sense of self-therapy, right? Yeah, but that that story was uh, was amazing as to everything is amazing in this book. <laughs> I'm going to say this a thousand times, but that particular story of watching reading of this woman like wrestle through who she wanted thought she should be who she wanted to be in terms of like who she really was and and trying to deal with that towards the end of the story of all of the things that she missed out when she basically for you know forsake who she was mm -hmm. um from her parents to her home to to everything um so after reading the king of zandria I was I was hurt hurt because as an immigrant I knew what it was like to move your entire life into a different country in hopes for a better life but then you soon realize that the country you moved in is not as welcoming as you would have thought um hurt also for my parents because like Mr. Atta they had given up their glory days the feeling of like control and like importance um Mr you know, Mr. Ada was already already felt that he was in fear in this new place and was made more 
apparent when he was called into his to his son's school regarding some issues. Um, a line that stayed with me from that story was um, when Alex was talking to his father and he said, you brought us here. Alex uh, saying saying that was kind of like, you know, it kind of was a little jarring to me to hear because I don't know if I also said that in my head to them or I was I felt that heaviness also from myself. Um, what were the implications? Um, you know, what implications did you want your readers to understand from this particular story? Yeah, I'm, I really like that story. I, um, again, that's a story that was born of just a friend of mine, you know, I was a public school teacher, but a friend who was a teacher in another area up in near, near to DC just heard a parent just describe this scene where a parent was kind of ranting in the office and using really big words, but not using them exactly correctly, but was obviously smart, maybe a second language issue. And she didn't say what the parent looked like um, or where they were from. And I just imagined, and I just kind of thought of all my experiences in schools and just imagining that feeling. I don't know. I really, I love spending time with someone who is an outsider and especially that character, that father, he's kind of prickly and he has some opinions. Um, He's a little chauvinistic. He has some opinions that I don't hold personally, but I've seen that person and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen that person in the world. And I think, like you said, I had an empathy for him because he, we all want to have personal power. And he felt like he was, you know, just had, was so bereft. He'd left so much. He'd lost his wife and he'd lost his like sense of identity and home and that I can always like kind of draw on that. Um, I just wanted to spend time thinking about that. And I think a big project of this whole book was to show not only how it might be to be somewhere out of place or to be home out of home, right? But also how it feels, like the feeling of it. Mm -hmm. Um, In the novella too, I really wanted to dwell on like how racist violence feels or how it feels to be under assault like in the body not just what you've lost physically but just that the stress and uncertainty and sadness and the grief and and also like the joy that can come by choosing to persist nonetheless or to create a new something out of it you know so yeah yeah what I like about characters like that is like when they're written in that way of showing like they have these qualities that are not always like the best qualities, but they're also dealing with these other things that everyone else in some certain time frame will deal with, be it the loss of a loved one or, you know, feeling like you're less than when you're dealing with a situation that is out of your hands. And I think uh, oftentimes we see that not done so well, you know, cause it's easy just to have a villain and not know like, what is their origin story? Like, what are they dealing with? And when people take the time to show you like the full scope of like, this is the person, this is, you know, you could have taken it from the perspective of the principal of like, oh, here's this parent again and I have to leave the door open. And now this meeting, I have to bring in the school resource officer. But to have it from this standpoint of like, this is what this is what I have been dealing with um, and trying to build this life from you know basically the crumbles that we 
we are dealing with with the death of my wife like how am i supposed to move on i've lost my job what's the what's the next thing and then dealing with the with his with his children um yeah but i yeah it's it's good to see characters written that way yeah it's like you know it's like another perspective of how like my life also would have been since i came from i came from somewhere else and i'm sure like it almost happens every day in schools and you know schools places of work how that frustration can come about and just also you know just the finding of sense of belongingness in somewhere is is very hard to find we don't make it easy over here (laughs) (laughs) do you Um, teach i i retired from teaching (laughs) when i sold my book I'd been teaching for 20 years and uh, that was the end of my 20th year. We were in a pandemic. We were in a global pandemic without vaccines. And I thought, I want to live to see what happens next. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> I made it. I made it. And I'd also, because I'd been writing and teaching side by side for so long, it was really nice to have the chance to be a writer for a little bit. So I'm not teaching now. What has that life been like for you to to not be teaching and waking up early and going doing lesson plans and all that wonderful stuff. Yeah, it's funny. Teaching prepared me. I do miss the kids a lot. I do miss the kids. But teaching really prepared me, first of all, for being, for launching a book because I'm kind of an introvert, but you have to like present. So I like have like, oh, I have like spreadsheets. Like before I went out on launch, I had like every question that could ever be asked of me and like every answer I could ever have. Like I'm a preparer. I have lesson plans basically for everything I'm doing. And I'm constantly <laughs> thinking about what I want to say and how I want to abuse the this moment of voice that I have. If I have to get out there and talk about the book, what do I want to say about it? What what matters to me? How do I, you know, I just I just kind of approach it with the same kind of energy. Um, and I get to go talk to kids. It's so great. The book, just in this last couple months has been a community read at mm-hmm. University of Virginia for their first year students at Sweetbriar for all their whole school community. I went to a school out in California with um, 17 ninth through 12th graders who all read at least something in the book. And like, so I'm like still doing this kind of discussion with young people and being getting to be around them. Um, but they take out, they want to take selfies with me. So that's much different than being with little kids and they're just like I need to go to the restroom really bad Miss Johnson (laughs) (laughs) I want to tell you (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up because I had I have this question I was just curious as to you were just recently I I think it's called a pronounced Alameda High School Alameda yeah and and I was just curious as to wanting to know what kinds of discussions are you finding that you're having with young people that you might not have uh with older readers is there anything that they're pulling from their perspective that is much different based on their own experiences when you talk to them about your book oh that's interesting um I don't know off the top of my head but I think that when you're younger you're so open um to new stories so they have like an openness about it it's new to them for the novella which is a reaction to Unite the Right Rally, uh, August 11th and 12th here in Charlottesville, when we had, you know, all these people flood into town to protect the Confederate statues, but also to, you know, promote white supremacy and just 
with torches and all the things, um, they don't know that. They've grown up in a world where that's already become much more normalized. They saw the storming of, they remember the storming of the Capitol, but they don't, you know, January 6th, but they don't remember Charlottesville or Charlottesville is the beginning of their memory. That's normal to them. Mm. So it's interesting just, you know, history keeps going. This is what my son will think about this time. So they have just a different perspective on that. All the things that the environmental apocalypse and social unraveling feel really real to them, like as if they're not dystopian at all. <laughs> they're just like, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dystopian is really sad. Yes, it's 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 very sad. And, you know, I think I'm drawn to like this dystopian novels um, at a certain degree because um, I can be very paranoid in my head. And I feel like, you know, I, I like you, you're a preparer. I want to know, I want to know what's <laughs> going on. I want to know what, what what's going to happen. And I know how, how I can save like my, myself and like the people that's important to me. Right. Mm. And I think, you know, with, with your novel, you presented us a reality where like my greatest fear. And I know like a lot of um pers- people of color's greatest fear was, um and it was realized in, in the novel, um, black and brown folks were hiding. They were fighting for their lives because white America is at a point where, you know, we're just kind of like purging the country of anybody that basically doesn't look like us, like in the most basic sense of, of the form. Um, how was the process of, you know, allowing yourself to write about these gruesome and maybe, you know, and hopefully not it's like teetering the not so impossible feature for our country? Yeah, so in the novella, my Monticello, I do, I write pretty much like my worst fears, both to do with racism and infrastructure crumbling and environmental um, issues kind of all coming together to just, and focusing on basically the street around the corner from where I'm sitting now, First Street. Um, So my neighborhood basically. And so it was hard, but I was already so worried about it. You know, I was I was already thinking and waking up in the middle of the night going, why don't we do anything about the environment? Oh my gosh, I can't breathe. Like, what is my child going to do? Will I have grandchildren? Do I want to? <laughs> like, what what will happen? Um, and, and then after Unite the Right, um, that rally that we had here, uh, you know, I really felt paralyzed as to how to respond to that. Um, I just, I wasn't sure what the right response was or how to counter something that felt so obscene and so dangerous and so just mean, <laughs> like I'm a, literally a public school teacher. Like it's like the opposite of everything that I believe. And yes, already there's racism and yes, already, you know, I, I know the things, I know some of the history of this place, but to me that brought it in a sharper relief for people to bring torches, to, to pull up the symbols of such violence and such um, such heartache and such loss and be with their faces uncovered and feel reasonable about that. I think sometimes it gets glossed over how dramatic that is to do and how harmful it is psychically too, not to mention the pe- person who was killed and the people who were injured that day physically. Um, so 
there was a there's a little bit of catharsis it's kind of like watching a really scary movie if you just go deep into the thing that's most terrifying to you um there's something about that because I was trying to figure out what do I think about all this and how do I want to respond and what I realized is that you know this is a story of a imagined descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings fleeing up to Monticello taking refuge there with a diverse group of neighbors while these marauding white supremacists are in town and kind of regrouping and trying to decide what to do and so I made a little utopia in the middle of this uh, apocalypse so basically I have all these brown and black women who are like kind of the leaders including the protagonist of the story and I have a lot of just general feminine power because they're not just up there as soldiers, they're up there, you know, she's a public school teacher, she's studying to become a teacher, right? So the way that she creates community up there is mimicking how a teacher might. And they're choosing to listen to this young woman because she's compelling and they're growing, you know, the, the old, you know, they're growing things up there. They're They're thinking about the relationships they have. There are children there. There are men and women having to work together and, they're reckoning with history. You know, we're in this moment where there's a real question of whether even factual history should be unspeakable in schools if it is deemed by a certain group to be uncomfortable for a certain group. Um, And that's different than, you know, not that we taught everything or taught it equally, but to have an outlaw to speak that, to have legislators saying this is unspeakable is really significant. And this story in this utopia up on that apocalypse, they are, this character is looking at her own family history, the history of the Hemings family, you know, the black enslaved woman who had Thomas Jefferson's black children, and also Thomas Jefferson. She's reading his book notes on the state of Virginia. She's thinking about these two legacies she has within her lineage, and she's reckoning with it, something that she didn't really want to do, you know? And so I think those things, that feminine power, thinking about the past, empowering, you know, black and brown people are things that will help us as a community in real life. Like if we're getting and dealing like to deal with the real problems in the world, like our crumbling, you know, infrastructure and in our in our environment that we're not taking care of. So I think it's really yeah. So I tried to put some hope in there. Also, now you guys are worried about this stuff so I can sleep a little better. <laughs> because I'm like, I've You're written everything I worry about in this book. You take it now. I need some sleep. I haven't slept in two years. <laughs> She's like, here, it's yours. Thank no, you. It's like, away. it's like, you know, it's also there's comfort in knowing that I'm not the only person thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going crazy. Like, this is a valid, this is a valid concern that we are messing up we are messing up, you know, for example, our environment, it's a real thing that we choose not to pay attention to. And then we are going to suffer the consequences later on, like for our children's children. Cause I also have a son and I was just, you know, telling my, telling Veronica, like all my greatest fears <laughs> for my son, like while talking about your book, <laughs> cause I'm like, you know, it's like, it, it's kind of a form of like, I don't know, like self-therapy and like verbalizing these things and not just thinking it because then it seems like if if people talk about it, then it's a real it's an it's a tangible it's a tangible thing that you're you're not just making shit up in your head. (laughs) 
but seriously, I think with race, I think about how race can be, you can be taught to have race be unspeakable. Mm. And the reason, you know, especially white people, but even in mixed company, like race can be unspeakable. And that really serves the way things are. And if the way things are, are super racist, then it preserves it. Because if you can't even speak about it, if you can't even speak just about race, not even racism, how do you manage it? And that's a huge strategy right now. Like you look at what's going up through the Supreme Court, this idea that race can't be a factor, basically using that, if you can't even speak about it, how can you, how can you make it, make improvements? How can you dismantle things that are obviously factually um, harming communities? And so, and I think the environment's the same way. If it becomes so troublesome that it's unspeakable to us it makes it really hard to have any action it's very paralyzing and so one of my projects for myself is to use writing to speak about it and to hopefully bring conversation about it I felt when you said you know it's very paralyzing because like you're literally like you're you're this one person you all all the world's problems and you're kind of just sitting there at 2 a.m in the morning like fuck (laughs) what am I gonna do about this like, how can I, like, it's like, you know, like a change the world kind of situation, but you know, you're only one person, right? And then it's, it's so hard to pull your, your mind out of, out of all of that, you know, yeah. the, the worrying and the paranoia is, is real. Um, but then yeah. you start making a checklist, like buying a head <laughs> of the apocalypse. <laughs> Oh my god. I was telling Denny, I was like, I, I started doing that when the they put us on lockdown and I'm like, okay, I got a car. I just <laughs> where could I go to? You know, like if, if shit pops off, like where where are we going? You know, it's like all of those things that you take into consideration of like what's gonna happen when and if everything like blows up in our face what will we do and I think this novel helps us really sit with us and think about like what's the possibility of what could happen but also in regards to my Monticello you also have the fact that life continues to be life like you have this woman who is now giving about to give birth she's carrying this child and it's like no matter what is going to happen life is still gonna do its thing regardless and so it's like what will you do when given this horrible thing and then given this like possible beautiful thing of love and creating a family in the midst of all of this and are you willing to fight for it um yeah 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 the the checklist story is probably the closest to my heart like that's even though I'm not that character at all I uh I I love first of all I love a list I love are you a Virgo no, I'm a Gemini. Oh, wow. I have all the lists. I say this all the time, but it's really true. I have lists every day and then I have like, I have to re, it gets too crazy. So I have to turn that folded paper over and put another list. And then I have a post-it on the list with a clarified <laughs> couple hours. Oh, I, yes, she is a Gemini. My <laughs> husband is a Gemini. Like you could, you need to see my Google calendar. It's like color-coded um, and then there's post-its and there's notes and there's a list for Denny. <laughs> you know like yes so I thought it'd be funny to have a list where this this mom this single mom is like trying to get a house but she's also like the world's falling apart and then she's like what hairstyle am I to have as a black woman as the world falls apart because you know I can't go to the hairdresser like the things like and you still want things right that's the other thing even when you know it's like 
not going to be good. You're like, how can I find comfort? How can I, you know, (laughs) you know, very useful list, like print that, print it out, put it on your desk. See if this applies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're at the point of our conversation where we like, um, well, before I get to this point, I wanted to touch on something sweet on our tongues. Uh, It reminded us of Gwendolyn Brooks poem, We Real Cool. Um, if it were written into a full story. Uh, mm-hmm. What places were you pulling from to show these young boys attempted to go through life mm-hmm. with these obstacles that they were either given to them or those that they were making for themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's definitely like my teach, my collective teacher story of just, you know, not those specific events, thank goodness, but just all the moments of rebellion that kids have that I could cut again, like Mr. Atan, the other story, the King of Xandria, taking the opposite point of view, right? So I could have a story where the teachers are like, oh my God, these kids are horrible. But I was just trying to picture how, what it feels like, especially in a town like ours, where there are just so much disparity between the predominantly black communities in town, not every individual, but writ large and where people live and people they go to school with and just it's just like right there it's just so obvious economically and the difference right and so I just wanted to be in their shoes I just wanted to be in their little rebellion all the moments of rebellion that they had that are really silly but then also like I don't know they're about something that we really experience you know so yeah just all the teaching stuff So uh, now we are at the point of our conversation (laughs) where we like to ask every guest that comes on our show, we want to know either your top five favorite books of all time or the top five books or things that you want everybody to know that you're really excited about. Like if you have friends that have a book coming out, is there a TV show you've been watching? Whatever. It can Mm -hmm. give us five things. It can be a mix too, if you want. Oh, I like, I like the. The five favorite, that's hard. That's a hard one. I'll go with looking forward to, I'm looking forward to um, some story collections I'm looking forward to. Uh, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Have you all read Friday Black? Yes. So good. I really admire. I got to meet him briefly and he blurred my book, which is so nice. But he um, has a novel coming out called Chain Gang All-Stars, which looks, I love the cover. I love him. It's super hyped. I'm really excited about reading that. Um, Another short story writer, uh, Jamal Brinkley, who did A Lucky Man, which is also behind me somewhere back there. Mm -hmm. John Teal's back there too. (laughs) Isha, (laughs) lots of books. Um, He has a new book coming out. I just saw on Instagram, the, the cover reveal called Witness. And he just writes these really lush and beautiful short stories that are a little bit longer. Like they just are pulled out a little bit more. He's really neat. I would recommend A Lucky Man and I'm looking forward to Witness. Um, I saw a review for a book that looked fabulous called The Daughter of the New Year. Have you all seen that? No. New York Times review um, by E.M. Tran. And it's um, a family, like a generational Vietnamese family. Like I'm all about like, I love family stories where you go back, that idea of connection of past, present. You know, my mother child does that in a really different way, but um, 
So I'm interested. I think that's nice. And I think it's like three sisters or something like that. So it's like, again, that multiple point of view kind of resisting that this is the one story you have within this, this woven thing. I think that sounds cool. Um, what else? Um, I think uh, there's a memoir by Nicole Chung. She wrote All You Can Never Know, which is a really beautiful novel. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Living, Living Remedy. And okay, just to be honest, I love the cover. <laughs> it's so pretty. It's like these, almost like these rocks and they're like split down the middle. It's really beautiful. So I think a memoir would be fun. And then the last one, a book that I'm reading that's just newly out um, by J Jonathan Escoferi, I think he is. He's like a Jamaican writer. And someone mailed me this book, which I love that. It's called If I Survive You. And it's stories, but they are like kind of the same family. And you kind of weave back and forth between, I think, mostly just the men of the family. But it's mm -hmm. the first story, I think it's called What Are You or something like that. It's just so about like identity and belonging and who you are and what the world tells you you are. And it's really, really, really um, smart and good and interesting. So I would highly recommend that one, too. And I'm almost done. stuff dropping this feels like yeah. the golden age of literature like like tv like everything that's coming out is really delicious and i'm just so excited to see what 2023 will bring and uh i know that 2022 has brought us so many great things to read and your book is one of them and again we are so honored and blessed to have you come on our show and talk to us mm -hmm. for this past hour about your your book um congratulations on the paperback release um go get that money um and mm -hmm. we hope that there will be more stories that you will create for us in the future to read um and hopefully we'll be able to talk with you again about them because this has been truly a joy and a gift thank you so much for sharing this space with us Thank you all. You all are the best. I appreciate you. Thank yeah, you. Please come back anytime. Anytime. Um, if you want to just, you know, talk about our fierce and paranoia, I'm here for it. <laughs> you know, if you, you want a, you know, a sounding board. Um, but yes, feel free to come back. I enjoyed I enjoyed your stories. I lived through them. I think because I, I like to read before I go to bed. I think I was in Monticello. <laughs> <laughs> like I that was part of my dream like probably in the, the past couple of days is you know we have to prepare for the interview so <laughs> I love it I woke up and I heard my son mommy mommy and I'm like, oh my god what's happening <laughs> well, I love it damn. well I'm, I'm so excited because Monticello the the they are um I didn't know how they'd feel about the book there was like a whole buildup where I told them about it and like crickets for a long time but then they finally read the book they were into it I had an event there they gave me a bowl from the tree that got hit by lightning on the thing so I'm trying to keep my dog from eating that bowl it's really high up I'm like don't eat the <laughs> Jefferson bowl but um but there's a book club that actually traveled here to go to Monticello and they went to all the places in the they went to the orchard. They went to all the places in there. And I'm like, maybe we'll have a My Monticello Monticello tour. <laughs> like, that would be awesome. Yes. Please trademark that. Yeah. Um, you know, don't steal Jocelyn Johnson's idea. <laughs> um, she she is starting that. So, you know, <laughs> copyright infringement. <laughs> Thank you, right. Zadie. I appreciate it. Well, thank you again. You take care. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.
Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme song that you're nodding your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon. Deuces. Deuces.